2: In this edition of Hoosology, Matt and Justin welcome Mike Prada, author of Spaced Out: How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball, to discuss the evolution of the game in terms of past and present eras. Has the changes been positive or negative for the NBA? Mike Prada will answer that question and a lot more. This is an awesome chat, and we even get into some NBA playoffs talk and discuss if the Brooklyn Nets are the real deal or. And if they can make a serious playoff run, get in touch with the show through Facebook and Twitter. Leave us a review on iTunes. Email us at HoopsologyPod at gmail.com. We are a member of the OTG Basketball Network. And now Mike Prada. He is the author of Spaced Out, how the NBA three-point revolution changed everything you thought you knew about basketball. It's being released November 1st, 2022. We welcome Mike Prada onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Mike?
0: I'm good, man. How are you guys doing?
2: Doing pretty well. Thanks for coming on to the show. I, I think the NBA schedule is going to get a little bit crazy. So it's thankful we have this mm-hmm. a day off just to recover. Um, so we wanted to talk to you just because I was just on Twitter just looking for you know the NBA books coming out this year. And, and your topic of your book seems really intriguing just in terms of you dissecting just the, the three-point revolutions. So just with a basic question, how did you come up with the concept of this book? And what was kind of your motivation?
0: Yeah, I mean, the concept, uh, they actually triumph-pitched me on this idea of doing kind of a, you know, they have a football book that's kind of like, how do you watch bat football? And it's called Take Your Eye Off the Ball, I think. And they're like, hey, we'd love to have a basketball version. We've got a number of titles coming out, including Seth Partnow's uh, book, The Midrange Theory, and a couple others. And this seems like a really good compliment. And then as we were sort of talking through the concept, because I, I didn't Think I would ever write a book? It seemed so daunting. Mm. Honestly, it was so daunting. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but it's (laughs) done now. Uh, But yeah, so as I was thinking about it, it really just occurred to me. You know, I I made a video a couple years ago for SB Nation about just how the game has basically stretched out like crazy, and it just changes the way the gameplay works. And you know, that's really continued since then. And it just sort of occurred to me that, like, kind of what the basketball we were watching right now. Is essentially being played on a surface that is one and a half to two times as wa- as long. I'm trying to get my mm-hmm. length and width mm-hmm. right. You know what I mean? Long, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, than it ever has been. So obviously, the gameplay is going to change. And I think it's one of those like kind of really simple eureka points that like kind of people look over. And so, the goal of the book was like kind of not necessarily to talk about like how shooting a lot of threes and why that's important because I think there's a lot of books out there it's more so just why did it take so long for teams to realize that it's good to do this and then more importantly what does it mean for all the other fundamentals that we think we know the game is about that the sport is now played on a surface that's this big rather than this big and just how the downstream effects so it's really not as much about threes as you would think it's a lot more about just what is the impact of this mean for everything else and then you know, I think that's kind of what the goal of it was. It's like, let's relearn this sport based, pretending as if it's a brand new sport.
2: So I want to ask you, Mike, to that point, through all your research you've done for this book, there's been a debate in terms of comparing different eras of basketball. And mm-hmm. I feel like in within the NBA specifically, there's always a thing of like, okay, this generation is better than last generation or, you know, this era of like all this three point shooting or, or how the offense is implemented, it, it's not as good as before. It's just a sense of just comparing different eras, which I find pretty tacky. I think, I think each generation can live by itself and be appreciated by itself. But go, I mean, you've done the work and done the research through the evolution that you have charted. Have you seen the How have you seen the game evolve? Have you seen it evolve in a positive way or a negative way? Just because you've actually done the research compared to a lot of the armchair quarterbacks
0: out there. Right. I mean, whether you like it or not is sort of a matter of opinion and taste. You know, I happen to like this a lot more. That's sort of what the motivation is. But, you know, honestly, like the thing about comparing eras, just as a general point, and then I think there's sort of a more specific point to be made, is that, you know, ideally what you want is that you want to appreciate history because it's the building blocks of what you're watching now. I -hmm. think a lot of times in basketball in particular, because I think it is such a sport that we've all seen a sport that we all feel intimately it does become a matter of like which is better which i agree is kind of tiresome and annoying but i think it's really interesting to sort of study kind of if you think about this as like the people before set the roadmap to what we see now i think that's a really cool way to actually analyze the sport but you know it's in general i think the the main point that i think has to be said is that Since I would say, we're going to call this, I I refer to this as like, quote unquote, the spaced out era. And it sort of is a little loose when this starts. But to me, it really kind of starts after 2014 to now. This Mm -hmm. eight year period, which I suppose you could rebrand as the Warriors era. But as I kind of talk about in the book, it's kind of the Warriors Rockets era together. Mm -hmm. This eight year period has been the most upheaval in the sport since the shot clock is sort of the main argument I make. What we are seeing now is so different from what we saw in 2014. It's so much more different than any eight year period of change in basketball that I think it's just such, we have to really rethink so many different things as to how we think about how these players operate and what they do and, you know, which is better. I mean, the biggest problem I have with that conversation is mostly just, I don't know if what's happening now is like fully understood. Like I don't Mm. don't think it's fully grasped and I think we're only starting to realize like wait a minute like all of the sudden change that happened like this is where the game is played now I think it's just like it takes some time to really fully reckon with like the massive amount of change that's happened and because of that I I was motivated to write this book just to kind of be like okay like let's reset this is what the league is now and now we can actually compare what these hairs are like with like a degree of you know specificity and so that's sort of the way I look at it as far as what you like better I mean I don't know it just sort of depends on what you're going for uh, but again I, I like this better because I think just the simple reason is more space means more ways to operate within that space and I kind of like the way things get formed and the way the game the building blocks of the game I just think there's more ways to skin the cat now that I think are, is really fun but you may not like that
1: yeah, you kind of lead into um, exactly what I wanted to ask you, which is like our, our comprehension. Because obviously, nowadays in the modern era, I mean, the speed of information is faster. But it sounds like, you know, the the feeling is like our understanding is still quite a bit behind. Do you think, of what specifically do you think we're lacking in understanding? Like, do we need new analytics for this um, that, that we can find or... Um, just in terms of like adjusting how we watch and, and comprehend the game uh, in this larger space, as you mentioned.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, like it's actually the more analytics is definitely not what we need. I think we almost have, there's just such an <laughs> overload of stuff going on. You know, the biggest thing I think is, and the reason that the book is called Spaced Out, and it's, I think, a reflection of how players see the game, is you really just have to, I think, think about basketball from a much wider lens than you ever have in terms of just what you see. You know, one of the things that I think is really, that I've always loved about basketball, and I think it really bears fruit now, is that it's the only sport that you watch among the major team sports where you see every single player in the frame most of the time. Yeah, you, know, you sort of take that mm-hmm. for granted because basketball is kind of seen as this one-on-one game, but it really is kind of remarkable that like I, you and I can see literally the same 10 players. We are capable of seeing it. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, we you can't see them all at once, you know. So I think the biggest thing that has to kind of be reflected is that it is a spatial game now, much more than it is a trench warfare game. You know, it is a game that is built around... It always has been a spatial game to some degree, but now it really is a spatial game. You know, it's a game where... It's not a one-on-one game anymore. It's very much a five-on-five game in terms of institution. I mean, like people would argue otherwise, but institutionally, the illegal defense rule is like a huge component of this this book. 20 years ago, like one-on-one defense was mandated almost institutionally, and now it's not. And that has totally changed how people read the game, how the sort of leverage of the game pull together. So to me, the biggest thing that I think has to be sort of, if you're talking about a re-education, it's just an acknowledgement that the currency of what drives every single possession the building block is space. How do players use it? How do players create it? How do players exploit it? How do players, you know, manipulate it? That's kind of how the game is played. And I think it's hard for people to grasp their heads around because for so long, basketball was a very, you know, station to station one i don't want to say one-on-one because there was teamwork but it was a very like sort of this thing happens and then this thing happens and then we get to this thing and then michael jordan is going one-on-one in the post and shooting a turnaround or kobe bryant or whatever and it really is about kind of just a broader view of er everyone can now see everything that's happening on the court at once because it's all spread out so you have to kind of almost think of it as a it is a spatial game it is much more like soccer than it is like three hours in a cloud of dust football, which is what it was. So I think that it's less about sort of the tools we have and more about the frame of mind that we take.
1: Do you think um, with the nature of, of having more space like that, that changes our percentage? Maybe is there a need to get away from... Or, or a loss of value from like the center dominating the defensive player of the year position. Uh, for example, I mean, centers <laughs> obviously still have a huge role. I'm, I'm not saying this to like bash Rudy Gobert or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but do, do you think we can even comprehend currently like the value of a lockdown perimeter defender? I mean, guys like Scotty Pippen, of course, Kawhi Leonard perimeter defense has always been valued to an extent, but I would imagine the value increases with an increased number of three point attempts.
0: Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a very interesting question. I think this year in particular has been a, uh interesting reflection of that. I just wrote a piece about for five about Herb Jones, the, the mm-hmm. Pelicans rookie. Who I think if you watch the playing game, you sort of saw what he was about last night. Um, I don't know if there's any way you can really make a larger value judgment mm. because Part of the thing too, and this is going to sound really pedantic and like kind of professory is like what even is a center now, you know, this is going to sound really epistemological, you know, one of the, one of the chapters in the book, I, I think the term positionalist. Which is like a really popular thing, like, hey, we're in a positionalist league now. It's all about mm. versatility. In some ways, I think it's a term that obscures as much as it illuminates. It makes you mm. think that there are sort of no roles at all. And it's just where everybody's just general a generalist. And I really don't think that's what's happening. I think what's happening is that you have divorced positions from height in a way that is starting, you know, it's still ongoing. You need tall people. But now the question is sort of, do you want to place your tall person by the basket all the time? Do you want to sometimes be able to have that tall person play out on the perimeter? Do you want to be able to have that tall person play in both spaces? Where do you want to deploy your tall people? I think these are interesting, more interesting questions. As far as, um, you know, whether, how you measure value on defense, I do think it's getting even harder for sure. Uh, I don't know if you can say that perimeter defenders as a rule are more valuable than rim protectors or that there's like a change in one or the other, but I do think that assigning credit or blame to individual defend people on defense was always very difficult. And just as we thought we may have figured out some ways to do it, I think spreading the game out just makes it even more challenging, you know, on an individual level um, because it's about what spaces do you want to contain so in some ways this year's defensive player of the Year race is very much a reflection i think of that ambiguity where you've got forget gobert for a second if you don't want to think if you don't think he's in the race you've got guys like Giannis, jaron jackson and other bigs but you also have marcus smart you also have uh rob williams you have draymond still in the race it's just a there's like such a mix of characters in this defensive play of the year race that it's just so fascinating. It's almost like, I think what's happening to defense now is it's looking more like a football defense where would you ever talk in football? Like, Oh, you need, you need Aaron Donald more than you need Jalen Ramsey. Right. Would you ever, it's almost like kind of, why would you compare the two? You obviously (laughs) need both of them, or you can obviously make it work with either one of them, you know, Does that mean that Aaron Donald and that position is more important than Jalen Ramsey's? Uh, Tell me if my football references are current. I believe that those are current enough, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's it's current enough. It's a great point about, you know, uh, a defensive player of the year. I mean, we certainly want to award defensive efforts, but that is a tough thing just in general to make an individual award.
0: Yeah, it's almost like sort of, I made this point when, um, the Bucks were playing the Heat a couple years ago, and the Heat upset them. Sometimes, like a defense works best if you have no idea who's who to who to credit for for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think that's even more true now that sort of you're now there's no it's not like everybody's trying to charge the basket all the time. There is like some ambiguity of do you want to kind of is this space out here more valuable than the space in there and whatever it almost makes it more challenging to you have to prioritize as a unit and so. You may have a system where it's built around I, I I think the in the book there's a lot of talk about like Toronto and the crazy way they play, where they have this sort of fly out to the wing and they collectively protect the pain with a bunch of six nine dudes. And it's like that's how you want to play. You are going to value that type of person, but you can also build a defense around like, say, Cleveland and what they did this year where you before everybody got hurt, where you're funneling everybody into Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, and you're also able to throw one out on the perimeter so that you can have the other there. It just depends on what areas of the court you're trying to contain. And in some ways, I think the defensive play of the year race is going to just become even more of a clusterfuck in the future as we try (laughs) to figure out how to measure these things.
2: Um, Mike, I got a uh, weird question for you. Forgive me if it's a little bit... no. No such thing as a weird um, question. Listen, listen to me talk. <laughs> 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 um, listen I... me talk. Listen
0: to me talk. Does anything in what I'm saying make sense? You know, it's all weird. Oh,
2: it makes perfect sense. <laughs> it got me thinking, just like kind of the way we see Trey Young, Steph Curry, like the, a lot of the three-point assassins that we kind of see in the, the game. And the way that mm-hmm. the is, that this floor is being spaced where do you see it like kind of evolving in the near future because to me I'm thinking like and I don't know, this might seem strange to compare, but just seeing, like, different, like, you know, average Joes on TikTok just make all these trick shots, and just like, you know, what we what was not capable, like, 15, 20 years ago, now your, your bagger from the average grocery store can hit insane trick shots every day. I'm just thinking in terms of your high, the top athletes in the world that play in the NBA, like, where do you see, kind of, the, you know, the, the spacing going if we see the evolution of three-point shooting? Because I feel like, I agree with you, ever since of this era of the Houston Rockets and of the um, Golden State Warriors of what we've seen with Clay Thompson as well, just in terms of the high three point um, percentages and just just the crazy shots and just what we see on just a nightly basis. Mm-hmm. How do you think that's going to change how defenses approach just you know guarding yeah. offenses on, 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 on a nightly
0: basis? You know, it's uh, like – what is it? Damian Lillard had a quote a couple years ago it was like, "I you know, I." I can just shoot a half court shot normally, so why wouldn't I like sort of go off like kind of one of those step up screens like sixty feet from the hoop and just launch? Yeah, I mean, ironically, you know, one of the things that I think is happening now, and I'm really looking at a team like Memphis. I think uh, is an interesting example of this, and the playoffs are going to be a really interesting test of this. Is that you're almost you're almost thinking of the game we think there's offense and defense and those are two separate parts of the game. That's sort of how it's always been. You know, you get the possession is when you go from defense and then you have offense and there are fast breaks and sometimes, but like, generally there is like sort of this clear line of like you're on offense versus you're on defense. But I think a lot of these teams now are going to kind of continue to adopt what I almost call like sort of total, like, I don't know, you guys soccer
2: fans, um casually somewhat Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you know
0: like total football the whole ethos of like the dutch soccer in the 70s where it's like guys are kind of playing all these sorts of different positions at different times and there's sort Mm. of yeah i don't know maybe i'm not explaining it well but the way you play offense and what you're trying to do on offense will set up your defense and vice versa so memphis is a really interesting example you're almost playing like a full court game you know in more so than you ever have before. And, you know, I think you're already starting to see this in different ways, but, you know, as far as like where people are shooting from, a lot of it will depend on kind of how your spatial alignments on offense translate to your spatial alignments on defense. So, just to use Memphis as an example, they crash the offensive glass like crazy, try to generate turnovers. In a sense, they are trying to gain more possessions than you. You know, if you look at their shooting percentage, it's not very high. They're one of the a mediocre shooting team, particularly in half court situations, but they are like historically great uh getting offensive rebounds and historically great at forcing turnovers. What they do on offense is they, they have a lot of let's attack the space and we're going to drive hard to the hoop and we're going to shoot some floaters. We're going to shoot some like kind of shots going to the mid range, but our rebounds are going to bounce closer to the rim so that our giants can grab it. And then you're stuck underneath here all the time. So you can't run back on us. And then meanwhile, as you like are stuck underneath here, you have to basically travel more of the court and then we're able to turn you over and we sort of create this flood of transition, you know, and then before you know it, like, it's like you've had those cascading 10-0 runs and just the the crowds going wild and whatever. And so at what point is their strategy offense versus defense, I think is sort of becoming a little bit of a blurry question I think you see this a little bit too sometimes in the other way. Phoenix is is sort of the – and when the Lakers won the title a couple years ago, they're a really good example of this, where it's like rather than sort of trying to see your half-court position as like a transition creation opportunity, you go the other way and you say, our transition opportunities are just giant, really big half-court possessions. So Phoenix is like a master at sort of rushing the ball up the floor, setting screens in the backcourt, starting plays like kind of these quick hitters. So what they essentially make you do, in particular, like off rebounds, Chris Paul will do this thing where he'll he'll grab the rebound and he'll go chase down the big guy and the other team and just dart in front of them so that basically he's taking him out of the play back there so that his team has a five on four. That's It's almost like the, the possession starts there. So I think it's less about where you shoot from, although obviously the capability of shooting from like kind of crazy distances makes you – come out but it's actually the transition from offense to defense that's becoming much more sophisticated and you can see these sort of total court games develop where in that sense because in a half court possession you know you you are bound spatially by the half court line you cannot you literally once you cross half court you can't go back to the behind half court mm-hmm. so there is like a limit on how far you can push a half court possession right we are close to it like I mean, you could sand guys at half court, but like, if, if the guy is behind the half court line, the, nobody on the Divas is going to come out to guard him because who cares if he's already crossed. But transition is sort of where you see, now we got some interesting kind of things to play around with. And so I think you're going to see more of more teams adopt. Toronto's another example of a team that has a, a very like offensive glass crashing and then push transition. They try to almost shove you under the rim and then run you back the other way. Full court strategy. I think you're going to see some more of that type of stuff, you know, kind of similar to how in soccer they've got uh, the counter press, the German counter press thing that, again, I don't know if any of you guys are talking about, but um, like how Liverpool plays where like once they lose the ball, that's when they put their most pressure on you to get the ball back. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jurgen Klopp style. I think you're going to see some of the like, elements of that sneak into the NBA a little bit.
1: That's, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I, I have to ask, you know, based on the reliance of transitional play, do you think that's something that potentially harms uh, Toronto or say like a, a bigger contender like Memphis as they mm-hmm. move into later rounds of the playoffs when maybe yeah. they're not able to control pace as much?
0: That's the eternal. That's what I'm super fascinated to find out because historically the answer is yes. The answer yeah. is, you look at, but then again, like you sort of you guys watch that uh, Clippers Minnesota game. I thought this was just mm-hmm. a fascinating like example in this. If you look at the game this way, the Clippers strat, the Clippers are very much an extreme, like we punt the offensive glass to get back team. And they were doing like it almost looked like on some of these offensive possessions, they were doing like a hockey dump and chase where they were just <laughs> chucking up a three. They said, Look, we got great shot makers, but You know, we're gonna make we're gonna make it a shot maker versus shot maker battle, and our shot makers are better. We're literally Mm -hmm. gonna just kinda pump this this three up. We are gonna send everybody else is gonna be back by half court by the time the shot goes up. If it goes in if it goes in great, if not, Minnesota, you're a young athletic team that wants to get out and run. You ain't doing that. You're Mm -hmm. gonna have to go against our step defense every time. And it was this fascinating sort of stylistic test. And in the end, like the Clippers the sacrifice the Clippers ended up making is they just didn't create you can't create good shots that way. Sometimes you have to drive, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know? And so Mm -hmm. I think there's, um, there's actually, it's going to be, I was kind of hoping we'd see Memphis LA just for that like same contrast. But I do think this is a really interesting question with Memphis, you know, on the one hand, you're right that in general teams have more attention to detail in the playoffs. They get back, they don't get caught. But if you think of transition play as like a thing you strategize rather than a thing you run back on it may be there there's a little bit more room for ambiguity there is going forward and I'm, I'm actually really curious to see how it plays out because I could totally see I mean Memphis sort of got lucky in the sense that they're playing a team that also likes to run but like I could see Memphis struggling to get by a team that has more attention to, that just won't turn the ball over as much or it would be better at defensive rebounding. But what I could also see is that they almost pull what the Clippers did against Minnesota where they're just – now they basically like – they're so scared of the way they run that they've just – they basically played like basketball, dump, and chase a little bit. Like, are you guys hockey fans? Casually. Okay, do you, I I it's you know maybe I'm describing this wrong, but you know like when they sort of shoot the ball, the puck in from the blue line, and then yeah. make a line change, mm-hmm. that's kind of what it felt like the Clippers were doing <laughs> on some of these plays, you know. So I don't know. I'm really fascinating to see. I think that also the element of sort of this being like a total, total basketball strategy almost, where it's like we are driving hard to the rim to get ourselves into offensive rebounding position, you know. I could see a team saying, you know what? All right, fine. We're just going to go under on John Moran all the time. And if you beat us shooting like 15 of 35 from three, that's so be it. But it's it's going to be really interesting. I think this year is kind of a really interesting test because I don't think there have been a lot of teams that have played like Memphis and Toronto. They're almost like, it's going to be really interesting to see. Are they, has the future arrived? or Are they like almost like too far ahead of the curve? I'm really curious to see. I'm, I'm just, I'm very excited to see how that plays out.
2: Uh, Mike, I got one last question for me, and I don't know if Matt has an additional question, but I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you specifically about the Brooklyn Nets, uh, mm-hmm. and they're kind of this. To me, they seem like an enigma, just because I think everybody, despite how they're seeded, a lot of people have them going to the NBA Finals with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, and I think. The news came out as we recorded recording this podcast that Ben Simmons would probably be available for a game four against the Boston. I'll Celtics. believe it when I see it. Me I'll too. Believe it. it. <laughs> oh, Agreed. Agree all around. Oh, oh, oh but, but yeah, exactly. I, that would be. I
0: just don't understand this is a guy who has not been mentally ready to play for a year, and now you're just going to throw him in at the for his first game is going to be this. Uh, you win took or the words right out of my mouth. I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me, but whatever. I don't we'll understand see. that either.
2: <laughs> I, I just don't. To me, it's like, do you see him even being anything of a factor? You know, if th- if the experts are correct in terms of projecting the Brooklyn Nets to make it all the way to the NBA Finals, is there any kind of a possibility of Ben Sims even any kind of a factor on this team or not? Because I'm maybe. a lot of people are really excited, but I'm just I, I'm like you, I don't understand. He hasn't played in almost over a year, so it's just I'm baffled.
0: So yeah. I'm to... Maybe if like I mean, maybe as you go deeper, I mean, but the other thing is like I don't. To your point, like who the hell knows with this team? Is? Yeah. They may have completed the weirdest season in NBA history when you consider why players were out mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and like what what happened. So like who knows? My my general thought is, you know, they can they are super incredibly dangerous in any one individual game. You know, they can win any one individual game, but over time, I just don't know if Kevin Durant in particular. When you consider the minutes that those guys are playing, the ramp up, and what's required of them, I just don't know if they're going to have the endurance to go all the way. Hmm. You know, but in any one individual game, they are they can beat anybody and are really scary. It's just you forget that the playoffs are a war of attrition as well as sort of a, as as much as anything. You know, and I just don't know. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this applies to Golden State, too, who's also got a couple of guys coming back from injury, you know, who are older. Like, And the Nets have played – those stars have played heavy minutes down the stretch for the Nets. And, you know, Kyrie has been in great shape, but, like, you know, it's just different – he had a quote recently where he was talking about how tired he was playing in his first back-to-back. Right? I, do you remember that? <laughs> I think – so I just – you know, any one game – absolutely, you know, they could win. I just – you know, maybe the uh, the rest between games will help them, but I just think that over time I – mean, we saw it happen to Durant last year. I mean, in some ways, Milwaukee's strategy was essentially let him run out of gas, and it – barely, but it happened. So, I don't know, but I don't like – if I'm Boston, I don't like that matchup at all, especially without Robert Williams. That scares me, no question. Um, I'm just not sure i trust him to – they're gonna have to probably what beat Boston, then then beat Milwaukee, and then beat you know Miami or Philly or Toronto or Atlanta or Cleveland, and then oh by the way the Suns or Grizzlies are waiting. Like I just don't, I don't really see how Durant's gonna have enough in the tank to do all that he needs to do at his age, given his mileage and to, to be able to pull that off. I just don't see it.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm with you there for sure. I uh, just wanted to ask you real quick, uh, your perspective on potential dark horse teams or like a team from the West, a team from the East, maybe that you feel people aren't talking about enough. I mean, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, there's so many interesting storylines i mean what's luca gonna do this year what what are the grizzlies who are you know new kids on the block yeah, so yeah. To speak, gonna do this year I'm, do you have any yeah, i'm looking at the, the title i'm
0: looking at the title so i know i have like the right definition of a dark horse here um so i know that
1: okay. yeah I, my context like, i don't necessarily mean like a title contender but maybe just someone that's gonna really impress more than we're giving them credit for
0: hmm uh okay uh well, I mean, I, I, I'm, a, like, I'm excited about Memphis. I do think that there is, like, they could crash and burn in that first round. But I also think that you typically look at a team like this and you say they're too young. They haven't come together. They need to go mm-hmm. through the reps. And this is something that I, like, am really interested in tracking in the next five to ten years. And Memphis is the first team to case study with this. Well, if the issue is, like, pressure and how do you deal with pressure, they played three win-or-go-home games in the last two years, Mm -hmm. and they won one in Golden State against Steph Curry. So are you really telling me that that team has not been in a big moment before? The play almost engineers different sorts of big moments that I do wonder if – it maybe will accelerate some of the timetable on some of these young teams. Like, I don't think it's going to happen for Minnesota this year, but you're telling me that if Minnesota is like a four seed next year and they're in a tight game six, that experience of playing that game in L.A. where L.A. is just battering and bumping on them and Minnesota's star player is is totally out of sorts – And they need the whole team to step up and the crowd's nervous and they're dealing with the game plan tailored specifically to them. You're telling me that that won't make an impact on how they view that next high pressure moment.
1: I mean, Mm -hmm. that just seems absurd Mm
0: -hmm. to me. So I'm really curious to see if Memphis has almost kind of gained those sort of pressure reps artificially through the play-in and whether that's going to help them have more poise in these later situations. You know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I just, I, I kind of feel weird saying that like Memphis isn't ready for prime time, given their experience, what they've done, you know, it may be possible that stylistically, like they're just going to have trouble in the playoffs. We'll have to see, like we talked about earlier, but just in terms of being ready for the moment, I I just have a hard time seeing like why they're not going to be ready for the moment, given the experiences they've already gone through. So you know, it's just. I think it's just going to be really interesting. Like, there's, it's almost like the plane can become this like leveling up situation for these young teams. Yeah. You know, a way to get reps in these high pressure situations. These sort of hey, guys are game planning. Like, I to me, like the last two years of what Charlotte has done, the plane like reveal way more to me than what they've done the regular season about that team going forward. Mm-hmm. If I'm like a guy with Charlotte and I'm seeing them the first time they get really scouted like to the degree they need to, they melt down the way they've done the last two years. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that like kind of makes me think that what you've done the regular season isn't going to translate, but on the flip side, you look at Memphis, there's no way that the experience of winning in golden state didn't fuel there's this season some way. So I think that's awesome. And I think it's going to change the way I'm curious if it changes the way we conceive of young teams, pressure readiness you know, and Memphis will be a great test case for that,
1: man. And I, I don't know, maybe this sounds corny or whatever, but there's like a chemistry thing too, with Memphis that, <laughs> that I think is a big factor. Yeah, it's interesting. Too. Like I, I, yeah. I get the sense yeah. those guys are tighter than most other rosters in the league, but I I'm, I'm way outside it, looking in on that, but yeah, they certainly are. And I, I mean, also it's like, it's just going to be
0: It's it's just a fascinating team like they they break a lot of rules and so the question is like do, do the rules really hand stand they break rules on how they play they break rules on how their team is structured they break rules on you know what not having the one main it's the one main guy and a bunch of you know guys around him versus a lot of stars they break the rules on you know experience they just they break the rules on style I and mean, just in every way it's a team that doesn't is not going by how the norms of the game. And so do the norms strike back this postseason, or do they defy the norms? I I don't know. I think they're the most interesting story in the playoffs, them and Phoenix's redemption story, but you know, Memphis in particular, I don't know if that means they're going to go all the way, but like, I'll tell you what, like if, if they get to Phoenix and Phoenix given what they dealt with Milwaukee last year with the big physical drop coverage and the two on two and you know, this sort of, physical defense that chokes off their two entry points and ruins all the other stuff that cuts off their supply lines. I mean, Memphis can do all that too. So that's not a matchup that I'm super excited enthused about if I'm Phoenix and they just lost to Memphis with Memphis missing, like their five most important players. So mm. I don't know, man, you're just points. saying, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I mean, and, and watch them lose to Minnesota in the first right. round because Minnesota <laughs> is like, just wakes up. Who knows? <laughs>
2: If that happens, you can imagine their celebration after they won that p- playing game. The so, <laughs> I mean, You're shit, nervous. I might hear it
0: all the way here from, from where I'm at in, in New York. Like, I'm going to wait. Like, why, need, why do I need an alarm clock that morning? Pat Beverly's loud voice right. is just going to wake me up that day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly,
2: uh, Mike. Appreciate you coming on to the podcast. Can you let our listeners and viewers know where they can find your um, work on social media, and then let them know where they can um, find the book as well?
0: Yeah. The uh, the thank you. The thanks again for having me. The book is out. You can pre-order on Amazon. You or you can pre-order it on the Triumph website. You can pre-order it uh, by. Of bookshop.org, so you can go to your local bookstore, which I think would be really cool because I think they need to be supported. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mike MBA. Uh, got cut one at least one other 538 piece coming, got maybe some other things I'm working through, but you know, stay tuned, I suppose. Um, the book is really the main thing, but yeah, that's kind of what I have going on. Thank you guys so much for having me. and for promoting the book. I I really think that it's the kind of thing I'm hoping that all basketball fans will be able to appreciate it. If you're like a super X's and O's person, you'll get it, of course, but I'm also hoping that if you're just someone who likes kind of enjoying watching a sport, I hope it will help give you like a different lens to enjoy it.
2: appreciate you coming on to the show, Mike. Thank you.
0: Thank you guys so much.